Let's go to Mark chapter 12 tonight. We continue our study through the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And verse number 35. Mark chapter 12, verse number 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Now what we're going to read tonight, what we're going to cover tonight, is actually a response to a verse all the way back in Mark chapter 11. Go back a page or so to Mark chapter 11, verse 28. Um, At the risk of sounding a little bit juvenile, you know, when two kids are in an argument, what do they say? Well, he started it. Well, they started it. They're the ones that opened this up, uh, this discussion, and Jesus was ready for it, as he always was. Mark 11, verse 28. And it's speaking of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they say unto him, By what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? This is what started where we are now. Okay? Now, they they fired this volley, and then they proceeded to try to trap Jesus with three approaches chapter 12 verses 13 through 17 they tried to trap him with a question about money specifically taxes then uh, chapter 12 verses 18 through 27 they tried to trap him with a question about marriage an absurd question by the way then mark 12 28 through 34 they tried to trap him by seeing where he would come down in the matter of moses And then we see he has an an encouraging interaction with a scribe that at least seems to me to be somewhat open-minded and reasonable in his thinking in verses 28 through 34. And then Jesus, in this passage that we've just read, he gives these Jewish leadership members a dose of their own medicine. And he begins by asking the Pharisees a question. Now, we don't see this in Mark, in his account. So hold your place here and go back to Matthew 22. Matthew gives us a little more to work with. Scripture is its own best commentary, and so we want to combine as much information as we can to get the the full picture. So Matthew 22, verse 41, the same account, but from Matthew's perspective, equally as inspired. 
Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. So Jesus first asks the Pharisees this question, and then he's teaching in the temple, and he's teaching these, uh, these folks, the, the, the common people, if you will, and this would include his disciples. He turns from the Pharisees, and he poses basically the same question to the people in the, in the earshot of the Pharisees. Okay? So... Um, it would be something akin to if I were to ask Michelle a question that was directed at her and she didn't give me a satisfactory answer, so then I turn to you in her earshot and say, okay, y'all tell me. See, that's what he's doing here. Um, and in doing so, he calls the scribes out. I mean, just calls them right out. And the response When he does this, the response of the people in the temple is to hear him gladly. They like it when the leadership that has been so difficult to work with and so quick to run their lives and so pompous, and they like it when they get their comeuppance. Do we even say that anymore? Their comeuppance. And that sounds encouraging. They hear him gladly, but... Well, this may seem like a good thing. Hearing something is not the same thing as heeding something. If I tell my son to do something, he may hear me, even gladly. But obedience is how I know if he heeds me. And this same group of people, many of them, just a a short while later, are going to be in the group that's crying, crucify him. Now, let me give you a little side note, a little sidebar. Why is the Lord at this point, we're just days from his crucifixion, really hours. Why why is the Lord teaching in the temple? Why is he engaging the scribes at all? These who have rejected him and have sought to trap him and even to kill him over and over and over and over. Why is Jesus even wasting his time? Time that is slipping away from him quickly. It seems to me that now the sides are drawn and his death is imminent. And Why not spend these last moments in what we would call preparatory solitude? Why wouldn't he spend some more time with his disciples in quiet? Why wouldn't he get some rest? He's going to need it. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus sees and knows hearts. And Jesus was and is a soul winner, planting gospel seeds right up until the end. Why do I think that? Because if he's in the temple... He's in the earshot of the people that are in the temple, but who works at the temple? Priests. And maybe they weren't part of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the the scribes that are accosting him. Maybe they're just there doing their job, like Zacharias was, like Simeon was. 
and he's just planting seed. Seed that actually shows some fruit. You remember in Acts chapter 6 when they selected the first deacons? And the deacons got busy, particularly Stephen. What does it say in verse 7? And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Could it be that this last witness of Jesus had planted the seed for that day? Maybe. Now, Jesus is now going to correct two fallacies in this exchange we've just read, and he's going to correct a third as he watches a widow give to the temple treasury. So um, in keeping with our alliteration, we're going to call tonight's, tonight's study Misconceptions to be Fixed. Misconceptions to be fixed, some, some, some errors that need to be corrected. Wow, that went a long way down. First of all, he needed to correct it. He needed to fix a misconception about the Savior's identity. The Savior's identity. Verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple. Now remember, he's already posed this question to the Pharisees. Now he's turned to the people. How say the scribes, those guys over there, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Ghost. Oh, wait a minute. What's that called? Inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. For David himself said, by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. The common belief with the Jews was that the Messiah, while he would be influential, while he would be powerful, while he would be mighty, while he would be capable of miracles, he would be a human. That he would not be God. In fact, there were some that even, even wrestled so much with the idea that their Messiah would die, they actually cultivated in their minds the thought of two Messiahs, one that would die and one who would live and be victorious. They didn't need two Messiahs for that. The one did both. He died and lives victorious. See, But they, they were under the impression that Messiah would be fully human. And the thing is, Jesus has already at this point claimed to be God and claimed to be the Son of God, which he was and he is. And so Jesus wanted them to see that their Savior, their Messiah, their anointed one, their Christ, would be both, would be a man, would also be God. And thus would be him. And so he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, universally regarded as a messianic psalm. Everybody that knew that psalm knew that David is speaking of the Messiah. Now, let's, let's look at it again. Psalm 110, verse 1. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, otherwise, just listen closely. Psalm 110, verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, what is that? That is the covenant name Jehovah, Yahweh. Okay? So, so David says, the Lord, God, said unto my Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Who's that? Messiah. 
the Lord, God, Jehovah, we would understand this now as the Father, said unto my Lord, whose Lord? David's Lord. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. It was accepted by everybody who knew anything that Messiah would be a descendant, a son of David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14 is where we first see that. Okay. So here's the question that Jesus poses, first to the Pharisees, then to the crowd. How can a descendant of David possess or exercise lordship over David? Why would David call him Lord if he was just a man? There's only one way that can be true, and that's if he's also God. Now, maybe those of you that are familiar with apologetics, you see this for what it is. It's a brilliant apologetic move. There's three things we see here. First of all, he finds common ground. Now, what's the common ground? We all agree that Psalm 110 is talking about Messiah, right? Yes, we all agree on that. We all agree that, that, that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, right? Yep, we all. So he's found common ground. That even his most bitter enemies have to, yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. Then he uses questions. And he's the master at it. He uses questions, and the ultimate goal, number three, is to direct his hearer to an unassailable conclusion. All right, I'm going to ask you questions, you're going to answer them, and you're going to find yourself at the only conclusion that you can possibly reach. And that's what he does here. The Messiah comes from David, right? Yeah. David calls him Lord, right? Yeah. But you say he's just a man. Would he call him Lord? Well, no. No, he wouldn't call him Lord. Then he must not be just a man. Oh, he's got me there. And and all the people in the temple, what are they doing? (laughs) He's got them there. (laughs) They're hearing him gladly. Can I give you another illustration of how this works? Uh, Let's say that that Brother Earl was a, a rank atheist. And he has embraced evolution in totality. Now, Brother Earl knows me well enough to know that I am, I am not just somebody that embraces intelligent design. I believe that Jehovah God, Jesus in specificity, created the earth in six literal 24-hour days. I'm a young earth creationist. Let's, let's pretend he's not. What am I going to do? I'm going to try to use the same the same method to get him where I think he needs to be. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find common ground. Brother Earl, are you wearing a watch? Okay, may I see it? Don't take it off, I just want to come see it. It's a beautiful watch. Wow, very nice. Huh. It's not real. It's not real? <laughs> It's a figment of my imagination. Okay. It's a beautiful watch. I'm I'm in a weird place right now in my life. I love traditional watches. I have about 10 of them. Now, half of them came from Cambodia and have stopped working. But still, I still have them because the bands are good. Um, 
but my wife got me an Apple Watch, and I can't argue the convenience. But it's not particularly, I don't think, it's not particularly, you know, pretty. Huh? No, it's manly. It's big, like me. But it's not, it's not very, um, elegant's not the right word either, but it's just not sharp. It's just not sharp. But he's got a nice watch. Brother Earl, do you have any idea who the designer is of that? Now, we've established common ground. I like your watch, and you like your watch. You got any idea who designed it? Okay. You got any idea where? Okay. But we, we can agree that somebody made that watch, and that it came from somewhere, and that, that it had somebody had to come up with how to put that watch together. Yeah. So I began asking him questions about that watch. We've established common ground, and I begin to ask him questions about that watch, and then I start working those questions into creation. And, and where I need to finally get him is to see, we understand that anything that has a design, by definition, has a designer. They have something called irreducible complexity. You, you can get something down to its, 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 you know, for us it would be the atom, but even the atom can be divided into, no, don't divide one because it makes a big mess, but, but even an atom can be divided into smaller components. But no matter, how, no matter how small you get those components, somebody has to have made that first component. You can't have nothing become something. And what you do is you try to get somebody to, to the only logical, unassailable conclusion that somebody, I may not agree with you that it was Jehovah or that it was Jesus, but somebody had to make this. Well, that's what Jesus did. Jesus used, he found common ground. He used questions and he directed them to an unassailable conclusion. And that conclusion was that Jesus wants them to see that the deity of Messiah was real. And that's important for two reasons. Number one, the people of his day needed to know that he was God or they're not getting saved. And the people of our day need to know that he's God or we don't get saved either. You can't get saved by a good, powerful, influential man. It has to be the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, here's a question we ought to ask ourselves. We, we would all agree that Jesus, we, we, would, we would confess to the hypostatic union. He's 100% man, 100% God. But how often do we treat Jesus as though he isn't more than anything but a good man? Because if it was really in the forefront of our thinking that Jesus is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God of the universe, we might treat him differently. So the first thing he had to clear up was his identity, the Savior's identity. Then number two, the scribe's intent. Verse 38. And he said unto them in his doctrine, in his teaching, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation." 
Jesus is now going to expose the Jewish leadership, particularly the scribes, for what they were. See, they wanted people to see them as esteemed leaders. They wanted people to see them as the the keepers of the oracles of God. They wanted people to see them as the repository of truth. They wanted people to see them as the cream of the crop when it came to religious people. Jesus wanted them to see them for what they were, corrupt religious hypocrites. So what was their intent? When we see things about that, what was their intent? Well, their first intent, and maybe their most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe maybe their most, um, what they wanted the most, uh, my vocabulary fails me tonight, was affluence. They wanted to be rich. The love of money is not a new thing, y'all. They wanted to be rich. So what does it say about him? He says, he says, beware of the scribes which go in long clothing. That long clothing was clothing that was the finest you could buy. It was long and it was flowing and it had the, it had the, the required fringes and so forth that a rabbi should have. Oh, but I'm going to tell you, they had gold thread and they had all the finest stuff and, 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 you know, and it, was, it was perfumed and it was, as they walked through a crowd, people would just see this, this affluent dress. When you saw somebody dressed like that, you said, that guy's got some money. They wanted affluence. Tell you what else they wanted. They intended to have a claim. They wanted to be celebrities. He says, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces. They would have thrived on paparazzi. They'd have loved it. I'm sorry to say, there's a lot of preachers that have been bitten by that bug. When I was coming up as a kid, and I'm not saying this was wrong, but when I was coming up as a kid, the big thing was to get a preacher to sign your Bible. And anytime I've ever been asked to sign a Bible, I'm I'm happy to do it. It's not often, but I'm happy to do it. But I always feel just a little bit eh, about it. It's not wrong that preachers did that. I have a Bible at home in my desk that got some pretty cool names in it. And I cherish that Bible. Many of them are in heaven now. So it's not wrong. But let me tell you what happens. Before long, preachers start believing the hype. And they start to think that they really are as good as everybody says they are. And before long, they're too busy. Uh, i got a preacher in mind right now. He won't pick up the phone unless you've got a certain amount in your church or a certain amount's going to go into that level. He won't pick up the phone. Shame on him. Now, it's not wrong to try and use social media to advance the cause of Christ. That's not wrong at all. But if I spend more time trying to figure out how to get a greater Internet presence than I do studying the Word of God for my messages, i got a real problem. 
They wanted celebrity. They wanted acclaim. I'll tell you what else they wanted. They wanted adulation. He said, beware of the scribes who love to go in long clothing. That's it. That's that uh, affluence. And love salutations in the marketplaces. That's that acclaim. And the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts. These are guys that have a table at the local restaurant. Because they're somebody. <laughs> I saw a preacher on online one time. I saw this. He's preaching, and some kid's talking while he's preaching. And I, again, I came up in the culture, you didn't talk while the preacher was preaching, or you would get what was called called down. Getting called down was not my greatest fear. My greatest fear was what happened after I got called down when I got home. That was my greatest fear. I remember one time, my buddy and his girlfriend were sitting in front of me in church. And they were holding hands in church. And the evangelist in this church was a man known for being a little bit gruff. And he pointed, just as if I was pointing at Miss Joan, Miss Sheila is right behind her. And he said, you better knock it off right now or I'm going to embarrass you in front of everybody. Well, my mom did not give the single thought that maybe it was the people sitting in front of me. I was by myself. I wasn't talking to anybody. I wasn't holding hands with anybody. I wasn't doodling in my Bible. I was sitting there listening. And let me tell you something. I got lit into when we got in the car. I didn't even do anything. Well, this one preacher, he called down these kids. And this is what he said. He said, you're not going to talk. You're not going to talk while I'm preaching. Hey, hear me, hear me. I'm somebody. That's what he said. I'm somebody. Easy there, partner. Then you're better than Paul. Because Paul felt like he was a nobody. But if we're not careful, we can start seeking celebrity. It may be something as simple as somebody gives something towards some cause or something and then gets a little ill that we didn't bring them up here in front of everybody and by name say, this person did this. Well, why'd you do it? That's a celebrity thing, isn't it? I have, I'm confident that doesn't exist in this room. But I have seen it. I have seen it. Well, I, I should give credit where credit is due. Well, okay, and Jesus said, then you'll have your reward. We'll get into that in a minute. The chief seats in the uppermost rooms, uh, the, you know what they wanted? They wanted affluence. They wanted acclaim. They wanted adulation. They wanted authority. He goes on to say, beware of those which devour widows' houses. What, what, what does that mean? Well, scribes were, among their other jobs, scribes were the notaries of the day. Scribes were the ones that drew up deeds, bills of sale, and so forth. And so sometimes when they would draw up something for a widow, they would say, now you realize if you're going to sell this property, if you're going to transfer this property to your son, if you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you realize you need to make sure and 
and give to God what he deserves. And they would manipulate that woman to where the vast majority of the profit that comes from that sale, or they convince her to just give it outright to the work of the ministry. Who benefits from that? They do. And they've devoured their house. You remember I've pastored two churches, had a precious, precious lady who didn't have any family. Um, and she asked me, she said, would you, be, would you be my power of attorney and would you be? And I said, no. I said, I'm honored that you would think me worthy and responsible enough to do that. But no, no, that is a recipe for disaster if I have control of your finances and everything else. Because even if you look me in the eye and say, I want everything to go to the church, you need to know that this whole town will say that I'm in it. No, I can't do that. They reveled in those kind of situations. And they robbed these precious people blind because they had authority over them. Their intent was to have affluence and acclaim and adulation and authority. If we could take one word and sum it all up, we would say arrogance. Arrogance. Why do we say that? Because he said, and for a pretense, make long prayers. They prayed with the intent of people being impressed with their godliness. Do you remember Luke chapter 18? Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Oh, by the way, Jesus exposed them for all three of those things. Or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, before we leave the scribes in 10, I want to give you another sidebar. Notice in verse 40, it says, These shall receive greater damnation. Let me pull out a couple of things to, to notice here. Number one, God is not impressed, nor will he reward this behavior. Any attempt we have to lift up ourselves, God is not impressed. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. But when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. 
But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Does it sound to you like God's impressed with this kind of thing? Doesn't sound that way to me. Second thing, this kind of action demands God's punishment. You're not just asking for it, you're demanding it. Matthew 23, verse 13. Jesus says, but woe unto you. What does woe mean? That means judgment's coming. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer or allow ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer, therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Jesus over and over, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not just asking for punishment. We're demanding it when we act like this. The third one, this is just something that's interesting to me. It's evident that there are degrees of punishment. We think of hell and the lake of fire as being this monolith in which everything is the same, but it's not. Oh, it's all horrible. But it's more horrible for some than others. Who is it more horrible for? Well, most notably in Scripture, it's more horrible for those that had many opportunities and rejected the Savior than for those that only had one. We see in Matthew 10, verse 15, and we see this, this echoed in chapter 11, verses 22 and 24. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Bethsaida, Chorazin, places like that. They saw my works. They heard the truth over and over and over and then said no. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. The scribes intent, they intended to be affluent and to have a claim and adulation and authority and it all sums up in arrogance. But then finally, and I wish I, I could spend a lot of time in this section, but for, we're not going to tonight. The standard for investment. He needs to clear up a misconception about the standard for investment. If you're going to invest in the Lord's work, what is required of you? Verse 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. Now let me give you a, just a kind of a picture here. He's, he's left... He's left the court of the Gentiles where people congregate and probably goes up to the court of women. Goes up these steps and goes to the court of women. And there is these, these receptacles that are lined up and they are in the shape of inverted trumpets. And you put your money in at the smaller end and it goes down and clangs in the bottom. And they're labeled for different things. Some of them are for the temple and some of them are for the poor and there's different categories and all of that. And so you've got these rich people, and, and presumably most of these rich people are Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and so forth. And they come, and, and there's no bills to put in there. They don't have bills back then. It's all coinage and gold and so forth. And so they're going to make sure and drop it in such a way that everybody hears the clang, 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 clang. Oh, they're giving so much. Oh, wow, what that guy just put in there, that's, that's enough to keep that, that program going indefinitely. Wow! 
Verse 42. And Jesus is watching all this. There came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. These were, th- these were two of the thinnest little copper coins that you can imagine. And they made up for her half a day's wages, which would have been much smaller than the average day's wages. Just too tiny. I mean, just nothing to them at all. And when they go in, you barely hear them. In fact, some people, some people probably, they're going, did you see that? I didn't hear anything. She faked it. She acted like she put something in there. That's a shame. Can't believe she did. She knew she didn't fake it. Kind of like some of us do at the toll booth. Yeah. Yeah. She knew she didn't fake it. He called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Just three things from this. The standard for investment. If we're going to invest in the Lord's work, three things to remember. Number one, God notices and uses every gift, not just the big ones. When we build this family life center, Please don't get me wrong. If somebody gives generously to that, if somebody gives a gigantic amount of money to that, I'm going to be so grateful, and it's going to move me emotionally, and, and there's no question about that. But let me tell you the ones that I'm going to remember even more. I'm going to remember the dear lady whose name shall go unnamed for now. Way back when I first mentioned the Family Life Center for the first time, at the end of that service, she walked up to me with a $50 check. And she said, I want to be the first. Well, it's $50 a drop in the bucket to, and to God it is. God will make that $50 go places that you wouldn't believe. I'll tell you what else. Is when some little kid hands me an envelope that's got eight cent in it. But it's their eight cent. It's all they had. And they wanted to give it to God. God, God has a way of taking little things that kids give and multiplying it, doesn't he? Five loaves, two fishes come to mind. God notices and uses every gift, not just the big ones. So whether it's the birthday gift of Jesus, Family Life Center, just the, the offering general fund, whatever it is, oh, I shouldn't even bother. I mean, this is, there's not, this is all I have. No, listen, y'all. God notices every gift, and he'll use every gift. Number two, God measures our percentage, not our production. He wasn't interested in how much she put in. He was interested in the percentage of her gift. Which leads us to number three, which is a close cousin to that. I think God's more interested in what we keep than what we give. Now, what do I mean by that? If I've given an abundance, but I've kept far more 
for my own enjoyment and not offered him everything, do you think that's really going to move the needle with him? I'm not saying that everybody should give. You know, some people have these reverse tithe days. We're going to give 90% this week. I don't know anybody can live like that. But what we should be saying every time we write our tithe check, every time we give online, every time we put something in the offering plate, Lord, I understand it's all yours. This is a portion of what's already yours that I'm getting. But Lord, if you want it all, you can have it. None of it's mine. But if we if we do it like this, if we say, well, Lord, here's your cut. 10%, there it is. That's not how we do it. I'm not telling you that next Sunday everybody needs to come in and empty your bank account. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm going to tell you that's what that lady did. She had two mites. And what she was saying, even though she was involved in a corrupt system, her heart was to give it to God, and that was the only way she knew to do it. This is all I have, Lord. It's yours. All of my money's yours. You might let me keep some of it, but it's all yours. My marriage is yours. My family is yours. My job is yours. My, my dreams and my aspirations are yours. I'm not keeping any of it. I give it all to you, and what you allow me to keep for my own use, I'll thank you for it, but it's all yours. We could dig into this story a lot, but I think that's where we'll leave it. What's the standard for investment? Here it is. You ready? All God wants. When you're investing in the work of God, here's all God wants. All God wants is all. That doesn't mean your check has to represent the entirety of your bank account, but he knows your heart, and he knows whether or not everything you have is his. So when one of my kids comes up to me, like Miss Jones been through, says, God's called me to the mission field. Well, it's the only thing I can say. Lord, they're yours. Well, I didn't say it was easy, but it's right. Lord comes to you and says, it's time to make a change in your life. I, I, I'm calling you into ministry. I'm calling you to a different job. I'm sending you somewhere else. Well, Lord, I'm mighty comfortable, but it's all yours. I want you to let go of something in your life that maybe isn't even wrong, but it's keeping you from being the best Christian that you can be. Well, Lord, it's all yours. That's what he wants. And he saw that he had that in that widow. She didn't have much, but what she had was his. So he corrected these three misconceptions. And now, Lord willing, next week we uh, get into chapter 13. He's at the temple. He makes a pronouncement about the temple. He says, there's going to come a day there's not going to be one of these stones upon the other. Now I'll give you a little a freebie as we close. Here's how precise and accurate Jesus is when he says something's going to happen. When Titus invaded Jerusalem in 70 A.D., 
Titus's purpose was never to uh, raise the temple. Because he understood that if they were going to recoup this, if they destroyed their temple, there's no reason for the Jews to stay, to stay in line. He could use that as a bargaining chip. He was a good politician. So he told his soldiers, don't raise the temple. A fire caught, they set fire to Jerusalem, and it got so hot that the gold started to melt through the bricks, through the stones of the temple. And those soldiers started pulling those stones down to get to that gold. Even though Titus gave the order not to, the temple went flat anyway. Why? Because they disobeyed a direct order? Well, that's true, but that's not why. Because Jesus said that was what was going to happen. And if Jesus says that's what's going to happen, it's going to happen. So I don't care how long we drag our feet across this sod. If Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, he's going to, he's going to come again because he said he would. I don't care how broke you feel like you are. If he says, I, my God shall supply all your need, court, then he will. Because if Jesus says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Those days you don't feel that saved, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. I'm going to heaven because if he says it, it's going to happen. I don't have to feel like it. I like feeling like I'm saved. But when I don't, I know that God doesn't lie. So, and yeah, what he says in chapter 13 is what really ramps this thing up. It, it accelerates their plans to get rid of him. And so we're going to see this, I think, move more quickly now in 13, 14, 15, and 16. Leading to the cross, to the tomb, to the Mount of Olives, and then we'll be done with Mark for now.